This is Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer, a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. And to support journalism and beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. I'm Preston Taney of Runhouse Brewing, and this week I'm glad to be talking to my friend, Kyle Harrop of Horse Aged Ales. We'll get into it in just a minute, but first this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. They've been working with brewers on a wide range of ingredients and delicious beers. First Tea combines the flexibility of order sizes with the experience you need to create innovative and successful tea beers. They get you the most direct from farm tea selection, so you are working with flavorful and consistent products. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsdtea.com. All right, Kyle, how have you been? Good, man. How are you? Doing good. It was uh, while I was at work today, it, it came to my mind that I don't think I've seen you in a couple of years now since pre-pandemic. Yeah, I was uh, talking to somebody in Georgia yesterday about favorite cocktail bars, and uh, I told them mine was Undertow in Phoenix, and then I realized the last time I saw you was in that basement, Um, and (laughs) it is not uh, in the coffee shop anymore. I think it's part of Century Grand now. Yeah, they've been moving it around, and he's got a couple more openings, so you'll have to come back out. Yeah, I uh, I look forward to it next time the Lakers go to Phoenix to beat the Suns, maybe. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready. We might get into basketball, but I'm still kind of hurt from <laughs> the games this week. Yes. Um, well, I figured to start off, uh, I assume anyone listening, uh, anyone even tangentially in the beer scene is, is aware of Horace and, and what you do. Um, but, but for the few that have uh, missed out, uh, if you don't mind, just kind of uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and about what Horace does. Yeah, so um, Horace has been around almost eight years. It'll be eight years next month. Um, I started it uh, with a business model that I could still work my aerospace job full-time with. And uh, by doing that, it definitely like forced my hand on a niche market. Um <laughs> Because it's it's very small. Um, even now, after expanding my club three different times, I have a bottle club similar to like a wine club. Um, I have six hundred members, and uh, you know, I release a lot of beers that are single barrel, like coming out of one fifty-three gallon oak barrel, and there's not even enough for um, one per person. So I have two different tiers now so 400 in the top tier and 200 in a a new tier that was this past year um and i cannot emphasize the word small but um really focus on stouts and barley wines and i've been doing these 100 percent crystal malt beers recently um definitely known for adjuncts and uh using crazy barrels at this point kind of pushing the envelope on things and uh yeah a lot of collaborations as you know 
<laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so I guess maybe this is uh, just something I personally want to know with the struggles yeah. of running a, a, a bottle club. Um, uh, Runhouse this year announced a two-tier system um, uh, similar to you. So I didn't know you were doing one of those too. Do you, do you find that that is something you know, that you would recommend to new brewers or to, uh, you know, at least uh, barrel centric brewers? Um, no, I don't think I would. <laughs> um, you know, out of, in other situations, especially a brewery that has, um, you know, higher production capacity, uh, you know, a club comes with a lot of entitlement and people feeling like that they're owed something a lot of the time um you know the flip side of that is i've had some members part of it from the beginning that are super loyal and uh i've loved to get to know them over the last half decade um but if you were in a position um you know you're opening with like a 30 barrel brew house or 15 barrel brew house and you're churning out the whole spectrum of styles um, and not just focusing on, on a few things like I do, I, I would advise against it. And I do advise against it when people ask me all the yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I could definitely see that. Um, in one hand, you're, you're getting the beer out to the people that, you know, actively pursue it. But on the other hand, there's, there's people that don't get to try it because of it. Yeah. And that's been my, I think my hang up, um, from day one is, you know, I probably get 20 to 30 people emailing or messaging a week, um, asking where they could find my beer. They're visiting from out of town, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, it's just something I've, I've really struggled with because I just flat out don't have enough beer yeah. and, uh, with expanding my club, I haven't really had a public bottle release in a couple of years now because there's just not enough bottles to go around. Yeah. So it's crazy. Yeah. I, you know, that I could answer that question. Um, it would depend on who, who the audience was. How's that? If it was a sure. really niche, um, you know, stout and barley wine producer, like what Brad's doing with private press, it's amazing. That's super cool club. Um, if you started out like I did, um, which a lot of people don't know, I was a hundred percent mixed firm. Um, I would highly advise against that right now because that, that style of beer just isn't as popular as it once was. And seeing a lot of friends, um, disappear even this year that followed that model. So, um, yeah, I think yeah. depends on the person depends on the brewery well um what about 2023 do you have anything in barrels and tanks that that you're particularly excited for definitely um so i only released one of my 100 percent crystal malt beers this past year um i'll have the very first one i put into barrels hopefully bottled here in the next few months um a double barrel version and a dark version um so really excited about that i got my second triple oak stout on the horizon um a lot of cool just stout and barley wine i mean i've my 
my barrel um, library is quite extensive now, and I got some crazy stuff. You know, a lot of the BTAC series and the Pappies and um, Elijah Craig age statements over 20 years and Knob Creek 18. Um, just, yeah, a lot of a lot of cool stuff. Um, very fortunate to get my hands on. So, yeah. How, how many barrels do you have filled at any given time these days? It really is, depends. Um, right now, are you talking sour or clean beer or all of it? Give me all of it. All of it, I'd say right now is about three, four hundred. Jeez. And, you know, when I started, I had, I think it was 120 mixed firm, you know, sour barrels, and that was it. And then, you know, the stout library at one point was as small as two dozen. So it's definitely grown um, along with, you know, my amount of club members. It's kind of gone hand in hand. Yeah, in, in, in that vein, you were talking about how, you know, we've seen some of our friends, uh, sour and funky breweries uh, start going the wayside, which is tragic because uh-huh. it doesn't seem to be reflective of their skill. Uh, it's not at all the best in the in the country are, are still unable to stay open um and you know we, we've all seen that that style has been harder to at least make a profit on in the way you once could um but you might be too close to this i that i've been seeing the same with uh these big stouts and yet you are able to continue to succeed and grow as a brand and a company um what do you think that is that that makes you uh, I don't know about bulletproof, but but go against the flow uh, and put out, you know, whether it's a recession of pandemic, be able to put out these, you know, high end kind of niche beers and still uh, demand the respect and the, you know, the desire from the audience. Yeah, I think like the one word answer is small. I'm just, you yeah. know, it's a it's a small operation. Um, I think, you know, the name has. Um, grown over the years i did the festival circuit for a solid five years i saw you in florida and illinois and all over the place um i think that really helped and people are genuinely excited to to get in that membership lottery and you know they're i retain the majority which is which is awesome and that makes me feel really good about you know people are enjoying my beers and i think from what i've noticed with my own beers too is a lot of people actually drink them Mm -hmm. um they don't just like go straight to secondary market and i think a lot of that is you know i have like one bottle limits on a lot of things um yeah definitely and it's kind of like a situation where you know if if you don't open that bottle you're never going to try it so um and i think that weeds people out too you know if someone got into my club just looking to flip for trading or that kind of thing it's it's not the easiest um thing to do i'm you know i have bottle pickups at random um they're about once a month and i just kind of go with my schedule and I do allow proxies, but you know, when you factor in shipping to your friends across the country after you get bottles and everything else, it's uh, 
it wouldn't be worth it if you're not drinking the beers is where I'm getting at. So I think for me, it's really cool to see my bottles actually open. Yeah. yeah and I mean, that, you know, builds that relationship with those consumers too, who uh, actually are drinking the beer and, and liking it. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I think for my club, a, a big part of it that I enjoy is I've pretty much know everybody and mm-hmm. um, I've been at every single bottle pickup and just having those one-on-one conversations and having that human element is a big part of my brand. And I, I think it's kept me excited about it over all these years. You know, it's yeah. not sending a bottle to a distributor and not having an idea of where it's going. And so I'm physically handing it to the person across the table. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, um, you know, to that point, the, the beers are, you know, hyped in the sense people know about the brand and, and the beer and the adjuncts, but but they're also phenomenal. Um, and I oh, think thanks, man. Oh, of course. And, and, and I think that, you know, that helps build the brand. And, um, you know, I have a lot of process questions and uh, I'll try and remember them all but but one of the first ones that i was thinking about was in in the best way i kind of thought about it was when when you see this great singer songwriter the question is you know do you write the song first or the lyrics and and i've always wondered that about someone who does the kind of uh small batch barrel work as you is it are, are you are you designing the recipe for you know these really nice barrels or these unique one-off barrels or is it the other way around you brew this beer and then and look for a barrel that that fits that no it's the first that you mentioned because a lot of the barrels i'm getting are just offered at completely random times and mm-hmm. um i'll get really excited about you know the opportunity to use them and uh I'll, I'll jump on it and come up with some idea. You know, I've tried to taste everything, um, you know, spirit wise that I possibly can before I use the barrel, uh, you know, getting like a heaven Hill 27 year bottle of bourbon is not cheap. So, you know, there's certain ones that are a little tougher, might see one at a bar and grab an ounce pour instead of buying a bottle. But, um, it's definitely tailored around the barrel at this point. And, uh, I definitely am with that in mind. I'm going probably three to five gravity point Play-Doh points higher than typical. Um, putting them in pretty thick and viscous with long barrel aging in mind to get Mm -hmm. that full spirit character out of them. Yeah. Without thinning them out too much. So do you have like a set of, you know, base beers that, that you can plug and play a little bit or is it scratch each time? Uh, it's four different base stout recipes at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the last time I tinkered with the stout was probably, uh, would have been about a year ago um, because it's a project that the goal is to quadruple oak something and having the body in mind um using a lot more malted oats and wheat just making that thing as thick as possible without going overboard on the sugar 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say there's, there's definitely some barrels that if they came along, I would probably tinker with it, but I am comfortable at the same time with, with where I'm at now. And, you know, the, the first one is very similar to what you and I went back and forth about eight years ago when we first made predation and, uh, that really hasn't changed much. Yeah. I know that back then I was hesitant to make it thick. And if you were to try that batch now, it'd probably be like water compared to (laughs) some of the stuff. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Like how far that's, that's come and, you know, kind of being the first or at least one of the first people to do those kind of beers on the West coast. I definitely had that reaction from a lot of collaborating brewers at the beginning. I still get it to be honest. Well, and and there's a difference between just brewing a big beer, which is phenomenally easy to do and then brewing a big beer that the complexity in the body, you know, represent what your, what your target is. And and that becomes increasingly more difficult. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate to have that, that first recipe kind of hit on, on all those cylinders, um, not being too cloying, but having viscosity and having some roast to balance things out. Like that was always important to me from the get go. And, um, yeah, I I don't know. I, I'm not going to say it's luck, but some of it was sure well it's easy to be lucky when you're singularly focused like you are um yeah. I, think, I think you kind of make your own luck uh at that level but um in that same vein that um you know when you're going into these barrels do you do you have a gravity and an abv um based on on the spirit um, does that, does uh, that- yeah. not really um i'm kind of thinking more now like single double triple oak um on where where i want to land so like if i'm gonna double oak something i don't mind if it goes in at like 11 percent abv um because it's gonna probably pick up a minimum of four percent across those next two barrels um mm-hmm. i'll typically go in at like 13 14 percent into like a crazy barrel um like a pappy barrel or something that i i think i only want it to be in that that one um i don't know what's going to happen with some of these triple and quadruple oak beers i think they're gonna push the 20 percent envelope i just had one tested actually it was 20.3 percent so um you know you get into like almost port like consistency at, at that point um with legs and the whole nine yards yeah so yeah, I don't know that I've kind of mastered that part of it yet. I'm just kind of going where I think like the ABV threshold doesn't get too high. Just kind of pretending that 2% is going to happen each time you oak it, I guess, would be the what I'm trying to get after. <laughs> and then build the body to, to, to make up for that? Yeah, just keep it, you know... I'm, I went in grossly thick into the ones that I'm triple and quadruple oaking. Like you wouldn't want to drink that beer out of stainless <laughs> without seeing oak. Yeah. 
And are I you, mean, are you, go ahead. Are, are you, you know, I mean, with, with that many barrels, um, are, are you afforded the ability to be like selective on barrels within a lot? Are you going and picking these barrels or do you have reputation, like, you know, good relationships with these uh, brokers? Both. I used to go to Kentucky um, into the actual distilleries even, and I've been doing single barrel picks um, with a lot of distilleries and then selling the juice that comes out of those at a buddy of mine's liquor store out in Corona. Um, so it's a mixed bag, but like when the crazy stuff comes along, you know, let's say, um, Hey, I got a dozen Pappy 20 barrels. Do you want them? Yeah. I want them all. Like I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to go out there and, and look at them. It's kind of like putting my trust in the person that's selling me them and, um, being very fortunate to have that opportunity. Now, with so we have uh, some stout aging and some uh, some some nicer barrels now that we've been holding on to some Rip Van Winkle and stuff. Awesome. Are are you able to see? I, I guess so. I know you're trying the spirit or trying to try all the spirits before you use it. Are you seeing a direct correlation between the flavor of the spirit and the flavor of the beer, or is it? you know, more complex than that? Um, is it the, the wood? Is it a mix of everything? I think the three things I, I look at are, or that I've noticed, how's that, is the higher age statements, um, they're typically mellower. And those are the ones I'm, I'm single oaking most of the time because it takes a while to get that out of there. It's great when it does, but it's not like uh, put it in for eight to 12 months and it's ready to go type of thing. Like I don't even taste them until the 14 month mark, pretty much. Um, I think having something like stag, um, I think the, the year I first got them, I want to say the proof on the one was like 144. So it was like rocket fuel, what was coming out of there. And I knew like that beer was going to take on a lot of spirit character. So having that in mind, I made a very sweet stout base. Um, I don't know if that's answering the question that you're trying to get after. But I, uh, I think looking for the strength, the long, the time it was in the barrel and then the mash bill like if you can really pick out the heavy corner rye like the spice character that kind of thing would be the third thing i look at yeah definitely um do you ever find like these great barrels and you put a great beer in them and the the end result is very good but needs blending or absolutely yeah you see that yep absolutely and I haven't such small runs. Uh, how, how do you, how do you predict that? How do you, do you have like, do you, for every bottle you need, do you have twice as much beer in case you need to do something? So the way now that I'm approaching it is I want it to be, I'll approach it as I really want this to be a single barrel and I want it to be non-adjunct. Mm -hmm. 
and I determine if that first thing is a possibility. And if I'm like, well, it's got this really cool like caramel brown sugar thing going on on its own. Um, you know, maybe this would work well with coconut or vanilla. Then I think about it that way. I don't really have a game plan until that point if something doesn't turn out the way I want mm-hmm. it to. It's uh, it's kind of a reaction. Sure. So, yeah, like, sure. the biggest blends I've done have been, I think, six barrels on a stout. And, um, you know, I'm blending, I'll take something that's super oaky, tannic, and just, like, dry and old school and blend it with something that's still really sweet in the barrel that didn't quite take on as much spirit character as uh, as i wanted it to and kind of do that one-to-one relationship and that's been successful for me in the past and then really crazily lately i've allowed others to uh choose three barrels um of their liking and do blends i did it with um three stouts with the guys that helped me wax and label all the time at my spot and then had my really good friend do one with a barley wine and then just had my parents do one and then let them choose the adjuncts that went into it so that's been kind of a new new adventure which has been fun and none of those beers would be what i would choose but i wasn't gonna put out something i didn't approve of and i i liked all six of them so (laughs) no complaint (laughs) that's really cool yeah. Um, m- moving on to adjuncts, um, I, I just <laughs> every time I do a beer with you, I'm just like, all right, we'll put like a pound of vanilla in it, and then you're like, per per gallon, or what? What are we doing here? So I've I've been over the years slowly trying to catch up to you and, and justify it, um, and I make less money each time I brew a stout. Yeah. Uh, what's your ethos uh on a few ingredients i'll ask you about but but one of them is vanilla um yeah i uh i mean eight years ago when when we're doing stouts um you know you could pick madagascar tahitian um, a couple other ones would pop up but now like i go through a vanilla broker who's got 60 different varieties from every you know reasonable continent um you know, dozens of countries, um, different varieties genetically of vanilla um, and in different growing regions and terroir and stuff like that. So how, how are you able to navigate the, the, the world of vanilla right now? Honestly, I've just been experimenting and then sticking with what I've liked. Um, I yeah. loved Congo. Um, the few Brazilian ones I've had have been really cool to me but for like a consumer palette i don't think people are looking for tobacco and earthiness from vanilla as much as they are like sweet and fruity mm-hmm. so yeah, i use uh ted jones vanillas of the world quite a bit um and it's been yeah i mean i've noticed stuff from fiji and camoros and 
just all these crazy places lately. I haven't even tried any of those yet. Um, I want to. I yeah. think the way I'm approaching it is just being a nerd and wanting to try all of them and hoping hoping some of them are great and some of them are good and none of them are terrible. I don't. It's like when you have that many things to choose from now, it's hard. And I, you know, admittedly do them on smaller batches with the new ones. Um, but I have used Congo quite a bit lately. Mm-hmm. And I used to use Ugandan primarily before that. Yeah, we, we've always, Ugandan's been one we've, we've used a lot. Um, I, I've never used Congo and I, I, I've been seeing you use it a lot. So I definitely want to take a look at that one. But um, yeah, I mean, is, is there... Is, is there a tried and true application for vanilla? Are you doing the same amount of days, weeks, months um, for no. every beer? Or no, no, no. It it's all to taste. Um, yeah. It's uh, some varieties, honestly, like two days of contact time is enough. And then others need like a week long heavy research. Um, I think, I think everything I do really is to taste and, that's how I've gotten to these ginormous, scary adjunct ratios too. It's like I use real stuff and it takes a long time or a lot of product to have that flavor come through a lot of the time and um, just tasting it until I'm satisfied with it. And I've said it a lot. If I put something on a label, I want somebody to be able to taste it in there. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, not always cheap, as you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially with coconut when you're having me fill my entire bright take <laughs> with coconut and we get we get like 20% efficiency. <laughs> yeah, I just did I just did a beer with over three pounds per gallon and lost <laughs> lost m- the majority of the beer. But I am very happy with the final product, although there's not many bottles to be had. Yeah. Do you do you are you doing the same thing, like just a couple days on the on the coconut? Yeah, I haven't changed the way I've done coconut at all. Yeah. And for those listening, like, I know you know, but just kind of treat it like a, like you're having your morning tea. Um, let, it, let it sit there until you get the flavor extraction that you want. Are you, are you then pulling it out and putting it in a bright tank or something or are you packaging straight from that vessel straight from that vessel a lot of the time i i like the way i've done coffee and stuff in the past i'll just have bags in the bright mm-hmm. yeah i, and I know, know coffee's kind of you know something that you uh, and whether or not people uh realize it's something that you've kind of perfected the um the nuance of these really cool different roasts and in different varieties Um, yeah i think you know at the end of the day if i got hit by a bus tomorrow i think um that would be part of the horace legacy is using coffee that kind of replaces the roast and malt in a beer and gives you that that balance without giving you overpowering or acidic or peppery or stringent like um kind of just found what worked for me and 
what varieties I liked, which happened to be a lot of the most expensive ones out there, unfortunately. But, um, you know, they have this crazy nutty and vanilla character that really bounce off those other adjuncts when you use them too. So I think people have been really receptive of my methods with that over the years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I've got more questions, uh, but first we're going to take a short break for this message and then come right back for more of the conversation with Kyle Harrop of Horse Aged Ales. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. They've been working with brewers on a wide range of ingredients and delicious beers. First Tea combines the flexibility of order sizes with the experience you need to create innovative and successful tea beers. They get you the most direct from farm tea selection. So you are working with flavorful and consistent products. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com. Welcome back. Um, I think uh, we got vanilla, coconut, and coffee, but um, something that I've uh, been hesitant to play around with, I suppose, is... Um, uh, are nuts, uh, you know, hazelnuts um, and um, pistachios and stuff like that. What, what's your experience with, with adding those to a finished beer? It's ironic that I just said what Horace legacy would be because it probably would be hazelnut, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've always treated them as a, you're adding food to a beer is the way I look at it. And you're adding something with a lot of fat to a beer and you need to be very careful. Um, with that said, I've had a number of infections and most of them have stemmed from almonds. Um, I've caught all but two of them before packaging. Um, it's risky. I don't know how else to say it. You buy a product and you trust the person you're buying it from and you're, toasting it and doing everything you can to sanitize it but it's just impossible at times and uh i don't think there's a rhyme or reason to when something can get messed up um my method is basically taking nuts um throwing them in some kind of food processor and getting the surface area low not not dusting them but a lot smaller than they come um i buy most of them whole and um unroasted unsalted just from nuts.com and uh i bake them myself and i go a lot further than i think a lot of people would they're you know borderline black because one i'm trying to kill the bad stuff but what i'm trying to do is bring out that nutty flavor and, uh, you know, I think the, <laughs> the funny thing I always hear about hazelnuts is, oh, I bought raw ones and I had them in the beer for a week and you couldn't even taste it. <laughs> it's, uh, definitely like they're, they're hard to pull that flavor out. And the flavor I look for is almost like a butterscotch, uh, caramel kind of nuttiness. Um, and you know, when that, when that goes into a beer, it, it's, it's weird to say you want a stout to taste buttery, but 
that's kind of what I'm going for with, um, with that nut in particular. I want it to have that savory component. And no, it's not, you know, diacetyl butter popcorn because mm-hmm. anyone that can detect that in one of my beers over 13 or 14%, if it did exist, is <laughs> they're an alien or have some kind of palate that I don't know exists. So um, I think pushing that, just pushing the roasting to a certain extent and um, not being scared of, of, you know, going too far and then using a lot of them. I use yeah. a ton and I lose a lot of volume. <laughs> they, they soak up a lot, um, a lot of liquid and it's just, it's part of doing things the right way. Um, I've tasted a lot of hazelnut beers over the years. I asked one person what they used and I tasted 20 beers after that that I could tell you was the same exact product. And uh, I've never had someone say that about my hazelnut beers. And that's because I go over the top and push them to <laughs> the farthest extreme I think you can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think hazelnut's one of those complex flavors that we know the synthetic extract tastes more than we know the actual taste. Absolutely, like the 7-Eleven coffee pump. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, a big thing too, like it's no secret. Vanilla will bring out the hazelnut flavor more. And I like to pair it with coffee too, especially geisha, because it's already got a nuttiness character to it. Mm -hmm. So just using it in things that will let it shine and making a sweeter stout base as as a canvas for it to stand out is the way I approach them. Yeah. And, and is it sacrilege to ever look into, you know, uh, using uh, nut flour? Have you ever experimented that and, and you know, uh, pan toasting it or whatever? I never have. Um, I wouldn't say it's sacrilegious. It's, it's real nut product. I think that's dehydrated and basically like processed down to sand as far as um, surface area. So I know a lot of people that use like peanut flour and stuff um, with decent results. Um, I've just kind of done it the same way since my home brewing days and that worked for me. So I haven't really ventured out yeah. those other, other ways. Do you have any uh, new secret ingredients that you want to share? Ooh, secret ingredients. Um, yeah, honey. Um, since I started making mead uh, professionally, I've started really using it in beer. I made a few brackets that did well at Mazer Cup this past year and have a lot more coming. Um, kind of treating those big beers like a mead and feeding them during secondary fermentation. Um little sugar here and there you know honey is not the easiest fermentable um, but it can add a ton of complexity to your beer and um yeah that's been fun i don't know what that future holds but there's going to be a lot of brackets coming out of horse heck yeah um yeah um the 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 dive into to mean making 
Yeah. Have you seen a direct translation uh, from your skill as a brewer as far as adjuncting? Um, I mean, you've got a different base to work with, but I assume there's some parallels. Yeah, I think it's kind of come full circle, to be honest, because I made um, more meat at home than I ever did beer. And the most important book to me, like from a fermentation standpoint, when I was growing up was the Ken Tram's Complete Mead Maker. Mm-hmm. And I think that really helped my beer making. And then to go back on the mead side now, um, yeah, I would say it was pretty awesome doing a lot of like the fruit in the mix firm beers first on a larger scale and now doing it with the meads um, definitely helped from a confidence standpoint as well. Um, meads are not cheap to make. I mean, yeah, these stouts are crazy expensive, especially when you adjunct them and account for the barrels and everything, but like meat is on a whole nother level. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, you talked about uh, adding sugar during secondary. Um, yeah. And that, that's something I've done once and was very happy with it, but it was so frightening to do. Um, we, we were doing it in the barrel, um, um, kind of utopia inspired um is 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 that something that you know you you do regularly or is it just you know a trick that you have up your sleeve um and stainless i do it quite a bit i've never Mm -hmm. done it in the barrel um yeah i think like using things like uh belgian candy syrup like i use that d90 stuff a lot to get like that marshmallow milk chocolate character in the fermenter um, is quite cool. And I've definitely used honey a lot lately. Um, Honey, the reason I do it that way is I think you're just going to piss off the yeast if you dump it in the whirlpool. Um, And you don't really want to boil it because you're going to caramelize it, boche it to a point that it's going to kind of ruin the complexity. and you knowing me i i'm using a lot of like crazy varietals i can get my hands on so a lot of hawaiian honeys and um meadow foams and different like fruit blossom honeys so i don't want to hide that character so i think that's really the only way to do it right in my mind yeah definitely um you know outside of uh the the meat endeavor um yeah what's in the future uh, for, for you and for, for Horace? Um, more of the same. I think um, the barrel program is just going to continue to evolve. And instead of double barrels, you're going to start seeing some triple barrels and quadruple barrels. Um, I've got some really cool stuff in the works. I'm doing... Um, my favorite bottle shop of all time asked me to make their 25th anniversary beer. They're up in Seattle, which I'm pretty sure you just made a barley wine for. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am making uh, my favorite album growing up. Like I was a senior in high school when it came out was thrice artists in the ambulance and it's their 20th anniversary next year. So I'm making a beer with the band for that. Oh, hell 
Yeah. Um, a few more Run the Jewels collabs in the works. And um, yeah, I just had the two Anchorage collabs released this past weekend in Alaska. And those were like a dream because um, the deal with the devil is my favorite beer on the planet. And we blended two of my double barrel aged barley wines with two of his double barrel aged deal with the devils. So I haven't even tasted the final product yet in the bottle form. It's waiting for me at home when I get home from Florida. So, um, yeah, I, I would say like stuff I'm excited about for the future would be being able to see, you know, a lot of people that I haven't seen in a long time and haven't been to many fests lately. Mm-hmm. Haven't seen you in like three years. So yeah. um, I definitely miss everybody and I'm sprinkling collabs in um, a lot these past six months. Um, just did a few this trip that I'm on currently and uh, that'll be kind of the norm f- through the end of summer and then uh, we'll see. I got, as you know, a soon-to-be three-year-old and a six-and-a-half-year-old, so that, a wife, and another job is is a lot. <laughs> That's enough, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'd be remiss not to talk about uh, Chris Dale. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, yeah, would, would you explain the, the, the beer and the, what drove you to be an insane person? <laughs> Have you tried it yet? I, I don't know if you have or not. No, yeah. I've been trying to get my hands on it, but okay. I hear great things. Yeah. So um, my mindset was I use a shitload of double roasted crystal and extra dark. and I'm a crystal malt fiend between my barley wines and my stouts. And I've read a lot about diastatic and why people shy away from crystal malts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So my approach to it was basically do something that made sense to me that didn't make sense to anyone else. Um, Taking something that I know what the flavor profile is going to be, but getting it to ferment. Um, And sugar is your best friend on that style of beer. And um, it tastes disgusting out of a tank. Um, It absolutely needs to go into a barrel and take on that that oak character um it was an experiment that exceeded my expectations and it caused me to brew four more pretty close after i saw that turning point which was the 14 to 16 month mark if i recall on that one um the first one i made is still in barrel it's been in there for over two years now It's not quite where I want it yet, but it's close. Um, I'd always describe it as an English barley wine meets a wee heavy. It's um, very caramel and toffee forward. And I think a lot of people expected it to be quite sweet, but it's got like this nutty almost like shortbread biscuit character and a very cast forward backbone to it so it all just kind of works good together yeah that's awesome um have, have you had brewers reaching out 
you know, brewing their own versions of it? Yeah, there's been a couple, I would say about a dozen now. Um, I've done two collabs elsewhere with them. And I've also, I'm going to do one at Pulpit Rock soon, um, which will be cool because I brewed their first barley wine with them three years ago. And the, uh, the third and final piece of that project is coming out this weekend. So it'll be their first Christdale clearly when I, uh, when I go back out too, but no, I, I definitely look forward to traveling and brewing those with friends and I'd love to brew one at rent house when the time comes. I think you'd love it. And, yeah. You know, I'm really obsessed with Munich wines too. Like Brad really hit something there. Like the fruit and nut profile on those beers is so cool. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's rad. I think between the two of us, very like-minded and just um, weren't really scared to push the envelope. Like, I'll be honest, I didn't know what to call it. Um, I was going to call it like an English barley wine with only crystal malt or something. But once I saw Brad do the Munich wine thing, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to own this. Um, yeah. And like at the end of the day, it's mine. And I think that's awesome. Like I came up with that shit. Not everyone's going to love it, but the people that do like really appreciate it. And they're like, wow, that was outside of the box. And it's not just another adjunct stout. Oh, absolutely. And the, the surreal nature of in 10 years being at some pub and drinking one that someone else you've never met brewed is going to be just wild. Yeah, I, you know, I had that experience with the Braggot recently, and I'm not saying, like, I'm the first person to do a Braggot, but, like, I think out of a lot of people I've talked to, it kind of, like, made them, I don't know if it, like, legitimized it to them, but it made them feel like they could sell one if they made it um, and kind of take the approach of this is going to be barrel-aged. Hey, if I want to put fruit in it, I'm going to put fruit in it, like, And I think that's kind of where beer is for me. It's like, don't go by the book, you know, like do what you want to do, push that envelope. And like, if you think an adjunct is going to go well on something, try it. Like the worst thing that's going to happen is it's a dumpster fire and you pour it down the drain, but like doing the same shit over and over again is going to drive somebody nuts. Well, I mean, that's good to hear because I have a brag that I brewed with Santi Pasha four and a half years ago that's still in barrels because i'm too scared to release it (laughs) (laughs) i need to come taste that it's the the good news is it's it's gotten even better the last year but i'm i'm gonna hit a point of no return soon so i'm i promise i'll bottle it one of these days oh that's awesome i just met timo at lost cause a few weeks ago he was out making a mead with billy oh nice yeah super nice guy yeah he was rough heck yeah um and i guess the most important question i have is what are the phoenix suns chances Ooh. of winning it all so 100% or 80% are the the two choices <laughs> i have here i think eight teams have a chance this year um my favorite team the lakers is not one of them i just don't i don't see it happening i would love them to but I think Boston and Milwaukee in the East. And I think, 
I mean, New Orleans looks really good. You can't ever count the Warriors out. The Suns are up there. They're in the top four. How's that? You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> this is pre-Lakers blockbuster trade, which they're about to pull off something. I have a feeling in the next week or two. Yeah, and it's pre the Suns getting a few more injuries. <laughs> yeah, they didn't Chris Paul just come back? He's been hurt, kind of. right? Okay. <laughs> Minutes. I mean, he limited. was there. Okay. And then we, we were down forty-eight points or something. So. Oh boy. They played Boston last night, right? Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Not excited. <laughs> we can win the West again. Yeah. Well, right on, man. That's that's all I've got. Um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and answering some of the the questions uh, I've had. And I'm sure a lot of the other people in the industry uh, have had. So thanks a lot for taking the time out. No problem. Good talking to you, dude. I hope to see you soon. Heck yeah. Yeah, we'll get together soon. I'll, I'll get on the phone with you tomorrow. Um, Sounds good, and, man. And enjoy and give your best to your family and all that. Thanks, you too. All right. Well, Kyle, will be back on the next episode of this show as the host having a conversation with a brewer of his choosing. And that will be on the air in two weeks. So make sure you tune in for that and visit allaboutbeer.com. Follow on social media and to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. I am Preston Taney of Renhouse Brewing, and thank you for listening to the Brewer to Brewer podcast. This episode was brought to you by First Tea. First Tea delivers the ingredients and experience brewers need for delicious beers and innovative flavors. Flexible order sizes and direct from farm teas for your next brew. Find out more about First Tea by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com.